Welcome to Foreman and Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And today, Chef, it's one of my all-time favorite topics. Wine. Well, re- uh. Fish dishes <laughs> for red wine. Okay. You know All how right. much I love yes. to ask, please put this fish dish on for red wine because there are people who like to just drink red wine. Oh, absolutely. And I do love fish. white wine. It has It has its place in the world. Right. It can be refreshing and delightful <laughs> and interesting, and and uh, and dry white wine is often, especially more mature, fantastic with a cheese course. Mm-hmm. But I yeah. tend to, yeah, I'm with you. I, I I tend to run that way. So, Cindy, the, the the question of the hour is, what preparations do you favor for fish with red wine? You know, I think of something that's going to have to be pretty hearty to stand up to a red wine and to make the fish, you know, it's got to be a fish that's compatible with a hearty prep and then red wine makes sense. So that's where I would start thinking. You know what immediately comes to my mind for a red wine fish? Yeah. Beans. I mean. Beans are not fish, Chef. Beans. I mean, you have really huge knowledge, but okay. <laughs> so, so fish yeah, with beans. So, yeah, and pork. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. and red wine. So one of my very favorite ways to cook. Can you cook, do any of it pork-free? I can. I can easily do it pork-free. Okay. So I make sure we have you can, you can either do it with pork or without. It doesn't. It won't hurt it. It's just your own personal preference. So, you know, beans are a starch. They want whatever they absorb is going to greatly affect the way they taste. Not completely, but you know. And um, a long time ago, I started adding red wine when I cooked flavorful beans. And um, petite ruche peas are uh, a pea that's uh, being raised by Anson's Mill in Charleston, South Carolina. And um, it's an old variety uh, heirloom pea that was raised hundreds of years ago in the South, in the southern part of the United States. And they're tiny. They're super cute. They're, they're, they're an eyed pea, like a black-eyed pea. And um, they're red, since the name. And um, they're from the Islands off the coast of the d- indigenous islands off the coast of South Carolina. So these are petite rouge peas. Petite rouge peas, and so when I when I cook those, I like to do you know good onion. Um, I know you like garlic. I don't add garlic to it, but certainly if you like cooking with garlic and you love that flavor, mm, depends, absolutely depends nothing wrong with it. with it. Yeah, onion shallot work that. Um, I would add the pork product at that point. We use slab bacon, so large pieces of slab bacon. I would brown that off. Actually, I would brown the bacon off in the pan first and then cook the onion and the shallot in that. Um, You can have a medium dice of your onion and a small dice of your shallot. I would finally chop garlic. If I was going to add garlic, I would gently saute it in butter on the side and add it once the liquid was was added to the peas because I'm just thoroughly against any sort of overcooking of garlic or browning of garlic. So um, then add good stock. And in this case, if you had a pork stock or if you had a chicken stock or if you had a chicken and veal stock, which is what I use, a brown stock, um, I would add the stock. Uh, and red wine, fresh rosemary, little Tabasco. I like spice in with my beans, especially if we're adding red wine. It can handle a good level of spice. You could add cayenne. You could add red, pe- red pepper flakes. You could add uh, spicy pepper if you like, maybe jalapenos if you like. Um, so whichever direction you want to go and get that broth going with that pork product in and really let that flavor develop before you add the peas because these peas in particular are pretty quick cooking. They cook in about 
30 minutes or less. From dry? Yeah. And that, that's how tiny that's, they are. That's really yeah, quick. Which is nice. And, you know, so usually like even a black bean is going to take, you know, probably almost an hour. Um, just depends on what bean you're using. But definitely develop that flavor. And then uh, wash your beans. Do check them for little stones or little pebbles or whatever or anything else that's not a bean and um, wash them well, wash them a couple of times. And with something as small as a petite rouge pea or a Sea Island white rice pea, which is also produced by Anson's Mill um, or grown by them, uh, those are so small. Uh, you don't want to soak them because you want them to, to have more time absorbing the liquid. If you soak them, they won't absorb enough liquid. It's quite the opposite of most other beans that you would work with where you would want to soak them first, wash them, soak them, let them sit for a while, and uh, and then cook, drain them and cook them. What you're chasing is a landing place for the for fish that you're cooking. So how brothy do you want the final product to not, be? Not too. Um I would say if 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 you can think of it this way, eighty percent beans, twenty percent final broth. So it's not the kind of thing you could plate on a flat plate, but maybe a coop or something like that exactly. is the right thing. For right, that. right. You do want broth, but you don't want it to. It's not going to look like soup. You know, you you want it to to be beans with some sort of liquid, but um, yeah, light. And and I think that that herb going in in the beginning is really important. And also remember whenever you're working with a fresh herb like rosemary, um, that you it's just gonna have only so much time in there that it's doing its job, just then pull it out. Because I don't really think anybody wants to eat rosemary stems, you know, or rosemary leaves. It's just not very desirable. And it'll just stop doing its job pretty quickly. Um, you might even wanna add a little piece of fresh rosemary if you're gonna cool down those beans before you uh, actually eat them. Let's say you're making them today for tomorrow, um, maybe just put another piece of fresh rosemary in with it while they cool down overnight in their liquid, and that will also nicely perfume it. Yeah, it's just really the perfume that comes from the oils that, mm-hmm. that are in there. Once It doesn't doesn't need to be in there forever to, right. to have that happen. And I also like to add maybe a little touch of olive oil to it right before I serve it. It's really just nice to have that little bit of gorgeous... To have that little garnish. Well, mm-hmm. there's, there's just, there's, well, I take it, I was going to say there's no fat, but there's no fat besides the bacon. If you don't have the bacon, it would really be nice to have yeah. the olive oil. Yeah. Well, and also with something like that, there's so many other things you can do. I mean, we haven't even started to talk about the fish, but with the with with the fish in mind, you could uh, you could serve that with a little bit of polenta. Uh, you could either serve it in bowls on the table, and or you could put it in the bowl with the beans and the broth, uh, or rice, of course. I mean, that's the traditional way is fish and rice. So, fish, rice, and peas, basically. And um, so, any kind of stuff. It could be basmati rice. It could be, you know, traditional short grain, long grain rice, whichever you choose. Just don't do. I wouldn't do risotto for something like this. No. Yeah. So. What fish would you would you land on? There are a this, lot. Uh, there are yeah. a lot that would like that. Um, I think swordfish would be absolutely gorgeous on there. Uh, I think rockfish would be beautiful. I think you could even do tuna, but tuna does not immediately come to mind. No, the you know the first thing that jumped to my mind when you were talking about that is that I want a gr- like a fat piece of grilled wahoo. Yeah, yeah. You know, I love that, wahoo. That's 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 been, a good flavored fish. Yeah, that that's yeah. been mm-hmm. like an oily, nice squeeze of lemon to it and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a it's a steaky, rich fish. Yeah, and an often underrated fish. It was one of those things that it was kind of ubiquitous on menus in the mm-hmm. in the eighties. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, things kind of fall out of favor, but people seem to be magically interested in 80s music again. <laughs> so maybe they'll be into the, <laughs> 80s the, fish. the puffy shoulder fashion and the, and the beautiful fish that is Wahoo. Well, you say Wahoo, and then I immediately start thinking about Pompano, which also kind of goes with your theory of, the you know, how it's not popular anymore. It used to be a very popular well, fish. It doesn't mean that it's not expensive. And that's the one thing with Pomp- Pompano is beautiful. Oh, I love Pompano so And much. I love it. Oh, and the, the oil I feel like everything's the, expensive right yes, now. The, 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 the oil under the skin yeah. on the pompano is so oh, nice. It's gosh, almost I like love pompano. It's almost like sardine skin. When you grill sardines, grill pompano, it's the same kind of thing. Right. The skin is like the garnish of the dish. Definitely. So pompano, wahoo, you know, grouper is a sweeter, flakier, more delicate fish. But honestly, I know darn well grouper could could hold up to it. But it's not really the ideal fish. Yeah. Maybe maybe lighter beans with, or you know, or we don't have to serve it with beans. But since we are talking about a bean dish, yeah, I think you want a stronger fish and something you know, stand up to it. A little oily. It's interesting. With with thinking red wine fish dishes, I do think beans, but I often think one of two paths, either a tomato path or a mushroom path. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, as as flavors that, that mean something. And also, frankly, like the tomato automatically has the acidity that's going, that's going to help with the dish. Yeah. The question is what makes up the rest of the content? Of the sauce, Vizcaína sauce is great, and that's the kind of thing you can make it, jar it in the peak of the summer, and use it just like if you're making tomato basil sauce or a particular pasta sauce that you can jar it and put it away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Vizcaína is that way, and Vizcaína is there are a million recipes for it, but it's essentially a third tomato, a third sweet onion, a third peppers, most of which are sweet. Okay, and uh, and saffron oh. good oil yeah you know and, and it's all stewed together a very long time mm-hmm. and depending upon the knife cuts that you should, but I've had very country versions where they're like big slices of things mm-hmm. and they kind of all break down of very small pieces of things hmm. but the, the, the slower you roast it the more flavor you get so what peppers do you like to use I mean mmm you know the bell horns that we get in the summertime? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those make the best. Okay. They're, they're the meatiest flesh uh, sweet pepper. Okay. And they're not quite as like immediately, they're not like capiscum pepper, bouncy. Like the red pepper always has that, the green pepper shadow to it. Yeah. The, the, the bell horns don't. Good. So those, those are prized for that. If you want to play roulette with it, throw one padrone. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> in with the bell horns. Woo-hoo. I mean, that's like to me. Yeah, that's never the. Know. That's yeah. It's either going to be a little spicy or <laughs> we'll get your full attention. Yeah. <laughs> and then you're going to need eight bottles of wine. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's water. <laughs> that's water or a glass of milk. <laughs> or a Coca-Cola. That's my always my solution yeah. to hot food. I need a Coca-Cola, which I never normally drink, but yeah. So, but, but yes. I mean that that's the the tomato <laughs> path. That's an easy one. It's not a tremendous amount of work that can have an awful lot of flavor. You know, that, that again, you would, like, plate it in a coop. Mm-hmm. And it's it's nice for grilled fish, but it's ri- the grouper is what made me think of it. Yeah. It would mm-hmm. be great. with and, and you basically just do a robe of it. You know, you mm-hmm. fish on the plate. And if you want something with a potato puree or olive oil crushed potatoes or rice or something, that's fine. I don't. You don't need it. No, right. you don't get need it. it. I, I, I just, it. I just want a huge amount of that sauce, enrobing the fish, cod, oh, fabulous yeah. for cod. For sure. Merluza. 
Okay. Uh, they'll, they'll call hakes sometimes. Um, the most popular fish in Spain for all of those following along at home. All right. Um, th- those are all, and, and halibut's the other one that is nice that way. Mm-hmm. But at these halibut's, you think of more as cool weather, and these fish are all wintry, and they're all like large flakes, sweet, mild. Mm-hmm. They love that tomato. <laughs> it's the steakier fish that you want to roast that have like more density to them, like tuna, that to me often want to go the mushroom path. Or olives. Yeah. Olives can it can and take that, things that like direction too. red wine, so that works. Yeah, there's there, there's a million different mm-hmm. fish preparations. It go down to Calabria, and it's like grill a piece of swordfish, and the sauce is is literally green olives, great big fat ones, mm. you know, long slices of them, porcini is from the woods that have been grilled, and then that in broth together reduced a bit. Yeah, that's perfection. Tightened up. Sounds so good. Give it nice oil. Mm-hmm. You know, some thyme or whatever, honestly, is growing on the darn hillside. Right. And all those crazy lemons from Sardinia, is it? Mm, or is that Sicily? Campania. Okay. You think that all over the Mediterranean. Yeah. But oh, those big the, lemons. The, the place where you saw the lemons that were as big as my fist, mm-hmm. that was Campania. The, just remarkable. I mean... Wow, I want some of that on a piece of fish or on everything. Yeah. I don't. I mean, I'm sure they're just perfumed and gorgeous and utterly amazing. Lemon tends to take it more towards white, though. So yeah, I, that's I would true. like to keep you between the guardrails on this okay. topic. Okay, that's okay. <laughs> and the, the other, the other obvious fish is like salmon. Almost any way that you prepare it. Yes. Well, Baruch is the answer to that, but that may be doubling up on red wine. You know, how how many times have you had, uh, like, turbo or, or salmon with bernays? Mm-hmm. You know, you think of it as a red wine sauce. It doesn't have to be or as, as a, you know, a red wine preparation or meat sauce. It doesn't have to be. Salmon with, uh, if you ask my daughters, and it's not for wine purposes for them, <laughs> But what is their favorite salmon of all time is when dad makes bernays. Oh, that's cute. Okay. You know, and all then right. just sear the salmon in the pan. Mm-hmm. And that, we've drunk Bordeaux with that. Yeah, oh, for with, sure. With no dip. Salmon has the fat content yeah. to, to take things on. And when you when you put a sauce like that with it, mm. you know, mm-hmm. it can take the little bit of tannin from a centimillion or something like that. Yeah, it's almost like salmon demands red wine. Yeah, I, can't, I mean, you know, short of putting like crab meat on there or something, you know, doing something that's just so white whiny uh, needed that uh, I can't. Yeah, I think there's so many different. Yes. The reds that go best with salmon most of the time, I think of Pinot or things of that weight. So if it's uh, if you're going a little a little more sweet than savory, then the West Coast Pinots will work if it's more classical flavors. And if you're going down like the mushroom path or something like that, it's Pinot from Burgundy that will work, or the Altawada J is a fun alternative. Um, and there are other like oddball wines, but those are good availability and can certainly work. If it's um, a sauce that has a lot of acidity to it, then Barbera can work, no problem at all, because there's no real appreciable tannin to Barbera. Okay. What else do you like with red wine fish preps? One of my all-time favorite things I saw on a menu, this is many years ago, I would not seen or heard, really had the idea. Someone did um, what they, they called tuna filet mignon. Mm. 
um, with, you know, little shoestring potatoes, basically a, a fish frites, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, which, I mean, that's, it, it's a different fish and chips. Sure. But they'd done a reduction sauce with uh, porcini mushrooms and uh, and it was like the veal stock and mm-hmm. good, you could bounce anything off of that. A bottle of Chateauneuf de Pop, no problem. You know, I have this idea of doing some sort of a a milder fish, but garnishing it with snails, and sort of doing something that's well, it's seafood with seafood, right? Red wine oriented, so that it would have a lot of garlic and would have red wine in the sauce. And like you just said, reduction sauce made me think of it. You know, a, a, a sort of an unusual escargot prep that would be really rich, but with a piece of you know fish that is actually mild. Um, maybe something like turbo, and pair the two together, I just think it would be sort of astonishing. And then to have some sort of maybe lighter red wine with that, I don't know. You certainly could. Now, Cindy, in the next segment, we're going to talk more red wine with fish and tools for cooking that fish and a few tips on Formula Wolf on Food and Wine or WIPR. Welcome back to Foreman Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And we're talking red wine and fish together, yes. right? So another preparation that comes to mind, besides your like controversial escargot oh, and uh, deli- uh, delicate fish preparation. So if we move on from beans, we need to go to something. Let's go to a vegetable. And there are, you know, kale, things like that that could be sautéed, sautéed with a little bit of garlic and olive oil, something very healthy. I would I would chop the kale into smaller pieces or julienne it, um, or even wilted spinach. I mean, if you go in the direction of greens and things that have, again, that are a little heartier, little te- have a little bit more texture, um, and bring another tone to the dish, I, if you're going to do something like, let's just say tuna, you could add absolutely in that uh, situation, add some olives to the dish. And I love the idea of of, of uh, green olives with that, not a, not a rich black olive, um, because that'll bring the tone up on, on the whole dish. Uh, so olives, maybe a little bit of julienne onion caramelized in the pan with, that brings in a little tone of sweetness to the dish. And um, yeah, just go in that. It's super healthy and just simple and something you can whip up at home in no time and pop that piece of tuna on the grill or in a pan and sear it and out it goes and you know, you've got this wonderful, healthy, fresh dish that has a lot of flavor and can stand up to a red. If you if you want red with that, what the number one thing you don't want uh, is anything from Bordeaux grapes, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cabernet Franc. That kale and those green olives will turn those wines very, very veggie. All the like joy of the fruit will go away from them in a, in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. And besides the fact that honestly that the density of those of wines from those grapes is often just too much for that kind of dish because that's a that's a very low fat dish. Yes. So you need something uh, ripe, you know, good acidity, very lacy. Uh, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind to me is something like from uh, Garnacha is the grape, but like from Caranena, which is like really just joyful, you know, Grenache fruit, and it does actually clean up and has some mineral tone that might tie in with the with the kale and the fish. But 
and they're not expensive either, which is nice. So what what would you think, you know, what comes, is there something that you wish that you could have with red wine and fish that, you know, oh, I just really want to drink a red wine, so therefore this fish is going to have to work out somehow? I mean, are you asking, is there a particular garnish or a particular yeah. sauce? Yeah. No. Uh, I mean, it it always starts with the fish itself, you know, mm-hmm. and there's some that, like take cod, for example. Cod's good availability, is often very fresh. Um, it's never easy to cook in some elegant way, hence the Vizcaino sauce being a really good mm-hmm. cover for the fact that while the fish is nice, you kind of mangled it. There is no easy way to do that, make it cute. Um, it, it comes down to the fish and what 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 structure the fish actually has has a lot to do with the density of the red wine that I would choose. Um, and, and then which colorings you take, you know, that, that sort of informs flavors. So you're looking at two things. You're looking at the structure of the wine and what fish that can work with. I mean, like, sometimes Branzino, I love with a, a Barbaresco, a, a Nebbiolo, but softer, so much, a good bit softer than, than Barolo, not as much tannic structure especially if it has some bottle age to it, or is it from a little bit lighter year? Um, I mean, some like some of the, the, the young wines, 18 Barbarescos, uh, which is a lighter year, might be very successful with a piece of Bronzino. The, and the, the preparation, I mean, that's the, the one classic one that we always serve has carrot puree and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and a little butter sauce. Like, there's, there's fat there. Yeah. There's fat there, there's sweetness there. The thi- and, and Bronzino, I mean, it's a it's a skinny fish that has that crispy, really flavorful skin. Also, what about that strength of flavor stands up to the wine, right? Now, what about a like a, a zucchini tian or something like that? Which you know, if it had tomato in it, if it had maybe some olives in there, we talk about olives a lot, but um, you know, because we can get fresh local zucchini right now that's so gorgeous, and do thin layers of that in a tian or gratin dish, and with good olive oil. Uh, maybe some onion product, maybe some basil and rosemary just to perfume it a little bit, mm-hmm. but definitely have tomato in there. And and I wonder if that would that stand up to a red? Do you think with a yeah, a good yeah, fish but, like Bronzino um, or something something Grenache driven perhaps, mm-hmm. not as ripe and sweet as that Carignan I was talking about, a, a Coteron village from a village like uh, Caran, C A I R A N N E. Um, North of Chateau de Pop, not as much power, not as much alcohol, not as much tannin. Well, and and it, with a, something like that, with a and, it, and a little bit like herby, spicy. Yeah. Okay. And you could do like a little caper relish or something with that, which would introduce something even more, you know, tart, well, flavorful. It, that just means it wants with more the acidity. Zucchini, gratin, or tian. Mm-hmm. Whenever you add salt, you know, salt needs acid to balance. Acid needs acid to balance. Mm-hmm. So th- those are two things to kind of keep in mind. And there are red wines that are more or less acidic. And there's some things like Grenache and some vintages, it'll show more or less fruity or more acidic. And a, a less ripe year, let's say like a 13 or an 11 or an 8, they might show very well. And uh, in a situation where you have something like that going on, we really don't want it to be so fruit forward. You want the spice, you want fruit, but and man, you want the acid to be there, 
to handle the uh, the salt that's in that dish. Sandy, that, that I feel like that's a pretty solid discussion of red wine on fish. Mm-hmm. Let's can we swing to how to cook that fish? Sure. And and some of the tools that you like to use or tools or tricks. Right. So to start off with, I was just uh, teaching one of my cooks how to portion deal with fish, portion fish for service the other day, and it just brings to mind that. Uh, the, the first thing you need are good knives for to handle it. And I pulled out a slicing knife, a boning knife, a chef's knife uh, to use to deal with it. And you need a slicing knife if you're if you're removing skin from a fish, a boning knife uh, and tweezers of some sort. Uh, a boning knife will help you cut out bone from from uh, near the belly of the fish or if you uh, just want to pull them out like you would on a piece of salmon, uh, you need little tweezers to just pull out those pin bones. And then I use a chef's knife to actually portion the fish. So those are the tools that you need to deal with fabrication of the fish. Or if you're filleting a fish, uh, you need a, a definitely need a good boning knife. And uh, it ca- should be flexible, quite frankly. Um, a hard boning knife is not what you want for filleting no. fish. And um, so then that's what you need to deal with portioning. As far as cooking, um, just if you are grilling, just... A basic tip for working on a grill is always the grill has to be absolutely clean, so it needs to be brushed down very. It needs to be brushed down very well, and that should be done after you've gotten it hot. Um, you're cleaning it up from its last use, uh, perhaps you know fine tuning it from the last use with a grill brush, and then uh, once when it's at the correct temperature, you know oil the grill down, let some of that smoke blow off before you ever let it touch a fish. And um, and then you want to lightly oil your fish. You don't want to over oil it because it will flame up and that gives it that kerosene flavor, which is awful. So, you know, we, we certainly want to get flavor from the grill, but we don't want to have flare, what we call flare ups on the grill um, because it does do that. So, you know, those are the things and you need to keep that brush handy because as you go to turn over that fish, you should, you know, clean the spot where you're going, re-oil and clean the spot where it was because you might want to go back there. Um, and and season it, you know, have your salt uh, in a container, pepper in a container, either by your stove or by your grill. Uh, be prepared with that as well. And um, you want a neutral oil for your grill to, uh, obviously you don't want to waste a good oil on your grill to so just get it ready for cooking. Right. And um, and then I think the other thing with uh, with with cooking fish is you, a steel pan is such a great pan mm-hmm. to have for fish. Go back to grilling for one second. Sure. Grilling temperature for fish. Yeah. Uh, you know, I I would be three quarters of the way up. You know, everybody's grill is different, but I would not be on high. I, I actually don't grill anything on high. Um, so you're you're about at maybe seventy five percent temperature on your grill. Yeah. But it's I was also, thinking to do back the temp down a little bit. Yeah. From, yeah, you have to be careful for like a steak or something. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, if you're searing something in a in a steel pan, that's a completely different story. You want a hot pan, and you you want your steel pan to be clean. Um, and we we uh, uh, clean ours with a stainless steel pad. It's the only time we ever use stainless steel in our kitchen to pad to clean anything because it's so abrasive. But uh, a steel pan needs it, and then we will reseason the pan by coating it with oil, popping it in the oven, and then we'll get rid of that. We will clean it then after that with kosher salt. We'll put a bunch of kosher salt in the pan, rub it, in, rub it around in the in the pan with a towel to uh, get that pan seasoned in perfect condition. And then when you go to sear, let's say, a piece of tuna or a piece of rockfish with the skin on, um, because you're just, you're, you always want your skin to be crispy on a fish, so you get the pan nice and hot, 
then add the oil, uh, pat dry your fish, make sure there's no moisture on the outside of the fish, and then go skin side down. And this is when your fish spatula comes in handy, which is what uh, you... Fish spatula is the best thing yeah, in the world. Yeah, it really is. So it's a, it's sort of a... It's the magic wand of cooking fish. <laughs> it's an elongated, holy, it has, it's not holes, it's... Sort of slots. Slots, that's a good word. Uh, slots in it. And... Um, they are perfect for fish, and it's big enough to usually handle a nice portion of fish. So it's it's just kind of perfect all the way around, and it has actually a little bit of an edge to the end of it. So it, it helps you to slide underneath that uh, gorgeous piece of fish when you go to turn it over, too. But you're So the fish doesn't buckle in the pan with the heat and only sear sort of on the ends. Yeah, you press it lightly. You want to press it lightly. Yeah, with that It'll, it'll settle spatula. down after mm-hmm. 15, 20 seconds. It just has to establish, yeah. Yeah, you definitely don't want it to buckle. That's one of the problems with grilling rockfish, is if you're not <laughs> if you're not doing that on the grill, you're going to have a butterfly looking piece of rockfish, um, or any fish that has skin on. Quite frankly, but uh, we we eat a lot of rockfish here, so that comes to mind. That's time for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, really, it's just a good steel pan if you're if you're sautéing on the stove. Uh, if it's a small enough piece of fish, you should be able to finish it on the stove. Um, if not, you know, I'd have a three hundred and 50 degree oven going. I would not have a super hot oven. Um, there's no reason for it. It won't do the fish any good. And uh, keep an eye on it. Now, the biggest thing with cooking fish is if it is a fish that you want cooked all the way through, just don't overcook it. And it needs to be very, very fresh. Can we talk fish temperatures for a minute? Sure. Because sometimes people, they find it strange. They just say, oh, well, Chef prepares the salmon medium rare or mm-hmm. whatever it might be. There's a good reason. What's reasonable at Yeah, home? there's a good reason. So tuna, swordfish, salmon are all three fish that immediately come to mind that I, pref- I, I prepare medium rare. Um, they're oily fish. They are structured so that it totally stands up to it being undercooked in the center. And that's what medium rare is. It should be raw in the center of the fish. And, and honestly, with tuna... I really, really like a seared tuna, too, and raw. I mean, not raw, but let's say rare L- on the inside. Literally mark it and stop. Yeah, I, I love it that way. But medium rare is great, too. You start to you start to go further than that on tuna and or swordfish. I mean, to me, they dry out. So I think that's the other reason why I really like to cook it that way for guests if they will eat it that way. Now, when you have something like grouper, rockfish, these white flaky fish, you want to cook it all the way through. And, but just. But just, yeah, exactly. And remember, you have carryover cooking. So even though it's not a huge piece of, you know, meat, and we cons- we think about carryover cooking with that all the time, um, you still have some carryover, uh, even with, a, let's say, an eight-ounce piece of rockfish. And um, so you want to just kind of take it 90% of the way there and then put it on the plate. And by the time you start eating it, it'll be... It'll be perfect. Yeah, you can have to rest it for a second or blot or, you know, whatever yeah. it might be. Yeah. And just make sure you season it. I mean, kosher salt is great. Um, I, I don't, you know, sometimes I'll put lemon on a fish, especially things, again, white flaky fish like grouper, turbo, uh, rockfish. I like a little lemon if I'm baking it and if I'm roasting it in the oven, basically. Um, I might hit it with lemon on the grill, too. If I'm doing a large amount of fish and I'm putting it on a, a sheet pan, I'm definitely putting a little butter and, and lemon on top because it's just going to love that in the oven. Yeah, if the fish has good flavor, it's funny. I'll cook it in a steel pan, get that good sear, and turn it over, put it in the oven for a couple of moments, bring it out. When it's, I don't know, three-quarters of the way finished, say it's a piece of rockfish or something, Throw a little butter in the pan and just baste it in that, mm-hmm. and the skin gets 
Yeah, it's gorgeous. Unbelievable. Another thing you could do is put a piece of rosemary in there, depending on what fish it is, but let that rock in there a little bit with that fat right at the last moment. Yeah. And that, that, you know, some fish can handle that, and that can be very pretty. In the next segment of Formula Wolf on Food and Wine, we're going to move from fish with red wine to red wine and some white wine from Pimonte. And we'll do a little primer on that on Formula Wolf on Food and Wine on WIPR. Welcome back to Formula Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And Cindy. Yes. I think I said that as fast as I possibly could, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Cindy. Yes. We're going to talk about... About Pimonte. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah, I'm I'm excited. That's purely... It's such a a beautiful region. This is a selfish segment for me because you know my heart is there a lot. So where is it? What part of Italy is it? Okay. Uh, Milano in the north. Mm, Wonderful. Um... Go west. Okay, doke. It's about an hour and 41 minute drive. <laughs> Tony has it down. I've only done it a few times. At what speed exactly, Tony? It's only like an hour and 41 <laughs> minutes to Torino. Okay. Yes. Uh, where the Olympics were some years ago. Super cool. And south of Torino, and, and that city is beautiful. South of Torino is Alba. <gasps> Yeah, famous for famous for the truffles, from. white truffles, and their hazelnuts. Yeah, yeah, right. For uh, those of us that where, love hazelnuts, well, where hazelnuts grow, truffles grow. So there yeah. you go. It's yeah. Funny how that works. Yep, perfect. Happy place. Yep. And also in that place are a lot of famous wines. Um, so Barolo, Barbaresco, those are the two most famous from near Alba. That area is called the Lange. And. Uh, when you go north, there's there's a river called the Tanaro that's north of Alba. Once you go across that river, the the terroirs change, and there's still plenty of wine and plenty of red wine produced. They're not as famous as Barolo or Barbaresco, but a lot of those, like Ruero, and then further north, Lesona, Gatinara, Carema, uh, Gemme, and Boca, all, all of those are... Largely, you know, these are all the place names. Those are all wines that are Nebbiolo-driven, just like Barolo and Barbaresco, but they reflect those different places, and they reflect those northern locales. So are we, aren't we we close to uh, France and Switzerland and therefore close to the Alps? You're, yeah, Piemonte literally means at the foot of the mountains. So you, you can, it is very hilly. Uh, there's, there's, Lots and you can see the Alps all around. Off in the distance. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not, it's not so far. I mean, right. It is. I'm literally thinking about mm, January. I want to fly to Milano, go to Piemonte, and then drive up through the Valerosta and the Mont Blanc tunnel. Oh yeah, that would and be then, great. And then down into France, or you can go, you know, up to Ancy, or mm-hmm. if you want to go into the mountains there. Such a beautiful region. And so what, what is the soil? I'm sure it varies, but... It, it varies a lot. Uh, the, the various kinds of clay, for the most part, um, what the French would call schiste and marl, are both there. Uh, it's not volcanic soil. There's, uh, there, there's a little bit 
um, near Geme, now that I say that. The exception is near Geme, you have some old soil from when tectonic plates shifted. Sure. Uh, okay. How many millennia sense. ago. Right. Um, but th- yeah, then some like giant volcanoes like swallowed up by the earth, you know. <laughs> When, when Moses was yet a baby, you know, that right. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it made for very particular conditions. But mostly, Piemonte is protected by that mountain range to its to its north and to its west. Mm-hmm. And any, like, severe continental climate that would be coming their way is cut off. So the weather is, it's not entirely unlike ours. It's just drier. Mm-hmm. Okay. And going further north cools it off because you're closer to the mountains. But the temperature change, like it happens here sometimes, the temperature change can be significant day to night. That's very good, especially for for ripening wine. You know, there's a lot of sun because you you still. I mean, you're in Italy. It's not you're not in Scandinavia. You know, right. there's there's a lot of sun in the growing season, and ripening is not a problem. With very few exceptions, the biggest thing is that temperature change means great acidity. Okay. And the varietals, uh, especially Nebbiolo, uh, which is the most famous and important one. Why does temperature change create acidity? Because the nights, the nights being cool, and the days, the days being warm brings up sugars. Nights being cool brings up acid. Okay. Cool. So that's. All right. That's why, like in the summertime in in Champagne, you get that effect because there's plenty of acidity there. You know, the, there's the sun in the daytime warms it up. Is Cham- Champagne so much further? Like what? Would, it is much further north. Yeah. Okay. So, but different different look. Loca- uh, there are places in California where that have big temperature changes. That mm-hmm. that's why they're good growing regions. Sure. And do they trellis their wines there? Is that a that region? Uh, no. Or, no, it's no. in the ground. At there, throughout Italy, there's so many different ways of training vines, it's nuts. Uh, I'd have to I'd have to show you a picture from we visited the best grower in Boca up in the north uh, earlier this spring. And Le Piane is that winery. If you see wines from them, for God's sake, get them. Uh, L-E, second word, P-I-A-N-E, Le Piane. And... They have all kinds of crazy trellising. That's the tradition up there. And the Nebbiolo is mixed with... Is it hilly? It's very hilly. Okay. And uh, it is challenging vineyards to walk around, let alone work, I'm sure. And and their Nebbiolo is actually mixed with other grapes, which is sort of the old tradition a lot in the mm-hmm. north. So Vespolina and Croatina are important percentages, sort of seasoning for the Nebbiolo up there. So looking at a map really informs a lot uh, of what what you find there. And as you as you head south, you expect you expect the sun to be stronger. And a lot of the expositions from everything kind of runs downhill towards the Mediterranean, right? Yeah. From the from the peaks and the Alps. So a lot of southern exposure and it gets drier because all that sun's sort of baking the soil. And things wines tend to get more robust as you go south. Is it is it a harsher climate? I mean, does it is it hard for the grapes to grow there? Yes, but a certain level of struggle is what what makes them interesting. You know, that's 
like Sharanuf, where they have to. Yeah. There's no dirt; it's all rocks, and you have to. The, they have to reach down so far into the ground. So, exactly into That's, the earth. In the end, all the vine does is translate rainwater, right? Yes. So the, the water falls into the ground, and if the vine has to reach very far into the ground to find water, then there's a lot of energy in that, and a lot of energy just in surviving to get the water up into the plant, and then the plant can flower and then leaf out and then produce fruit. But th- there's so much work in all of that, right? Yes. And if it takes a really long time for the for the season because of the weather and because of all that work being done by the plant, then the fruit that's there, those berries, have remarkable interest to them. They've, they've, they've already lived this long journey. You know, they have a really serious story to tell. And it's the story of that season, that soil, and then the last piece of the story is the one where the human hand is involved and decisions are made about pulling leaves to create more sun exposure or, um, you know, treating with chemicals or not treating with chemicals. Oh, I well, mean, that's... Yes. Yeah. They, or treating things naturally. You know, or do you... Do you there's so many different variables in, in oh, uh, farming. viticulture. Sure. Yeah. yeah. It's a lot and, of and, decisions and to make. They, like they all affect the life of the vine. And I always think it's wine is magical, but it's got to be unbelievably frustrating because how many years do you have to wait to see if you make good decisions? Yeah, exactly. And how many seasons does it take till you have any ability to begin to anticipate? You're no, but get, that's a good no. But that's I think that's tangent. I think that's really interesting because you know you 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 make something, but you don't know how long how it's how it's going to be ten years from now. So how do you make a decision next year for farming? If you really don't know exactly what has happened with your product from the year before, the year before, the year before, you know, that's, yeah, there's some guesswork there. I mean, I know they can taste the wine, but well, when they make it, it, but. In general, detail orientation serves, you know, data gathering serves. It can't all just be anecdotal. Oh, my grandfather said in 1937, such and such happened. You know, they, they, they have to they have to continue to work at it. I would say in general, Winemaking quality in most of the important regions has only gone up significantly over time. In Italy or, yeah. or specifically? Or in, in, in all the world. Good. In all the world. And there's more technology. There's more competition. And frankly, I mean, capitalism. If you can make a wine from a place famous, all the real estate in that place is much more valuable than it used to be. Mm-hmm. How long have they been making wine in that region? In Piemonte, uh, about twenty four hundred years. <laughs> Gosh, so kind of n- kind of new for Italy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, all right, new for Italy. <laughs> Actually, no longer than that. I'm sorry, about twenty seven, twenty seven. Okay, because that yeah, Gamay. So amazing. Yeah, Gamay, that was part of their trade. It's interesting. Northern Piemonte was more famous for their wines than the south, because if you think about it, the acidities are higher as you go north. There was there was no preservation. They would make the wine, and then because there were no sulfites, the wines would die the next year. So if the acidities are higher, they would live a little longer, one. Okay. And two, they wouldn't have the sort of like the sloppy corpulence of of some of the reds that were not, where fermentations were not controlled temperature-wise. A cooler place that, that made reds, probably made a lot tastier reds at that time. 
if that makes sense. Is that why they used to store the those those uh, urns? You're talking the, about amphora. Yeah, the amphoras in the ground because it was too hot. Or was it just the way that, they did? That's a tradition from the, originally the Middle East and from Sicily, mm-hmm. uh, for sure. That's yeah, amphora going into. Uh, I should not say Greece because it was definitely Greece too. But yeah, you're burying the amphora in the rock. Is that because it was and too doing hot? fermentations in those amphora? Well, to try to control temperature. temperatures for, yeah. during fermentation. And that's because if it's 110 degrees outside, yeah, and and. It's not like you've dug this incredible cellar, you know. So if you're not, it's not like, you know, you're going down an elevator to some underground lair. <laughs> right, I get it. So going back to Piemonte, w- what are some of your favorite wines that you experienced recently then? Well, it, there there's a lot of different things that are produced. There, there are two important white grapes in Piemonte that can be delicious, Arneas. Uh, Arneis, A-R-N-E-I-S, is a white grape that is probably most famous from the area of Ruero, which is just north of Barolo and Barbaresco. And uh, this is, think something like the size of Suave, maybe um, built very differently from Sauvignon Blanc, but not unlike Sauvignon, and that there's like a, a medium weight of freshness to it, it can handle. I was like, I want Arnaz for summertime. I want Arnaz like in a courtyard, you know, a little crudite vegetables, that kind of that kind of thing. Uh, and there's a brightness and a charm, and and uh, a little like white fruit, white cherry, that kind of character to it. It's not particularly particularly tart. It's just happy and fresh. Uh, the other grape, the other white grape, is important is Cortese. Cortese, a little more serious, and thicker-skinned white grape, which means it has a little bit of tannin to it. And that tannin will take on stronger things, stronger flavors. In the wintertime, I'd rather have some hazelnuts Mm -hmm. by a wood fire and have that Cortese that can actually take the fat from the hazelnuts. And Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And and in that region, what what is the region known for food-wise? Well, I mean... The best, the most interesting cheese in Italy, I would say, and the most diverse. Remember, that's old Kingdom of Savona. Uh, so that the Savoie through Milan, and Savoie in France through Milan, that's all, you know, the Genovese are south of there, and that's that's all north of there. The cheese culture is important, but but everything. I mean, and marvelous, marvelous pasta, two important dishes, tagliatine which is Tagliolini in Piemontese, and uh, Agnolotti da Plin. Yes. So, real quick on the grapes, right? I've kept talking about Nebbiolo, Nebbiolo, Nebbiolo. The reality is almost no one drinks Nebbiolo every day in that region. They drink Dolcetto when they want something kind of punchy. literally means little sweet one. Uh, Very like blue fruit, uh, punchy, has some tannin, acids lower. That's the that's the Piemontese burger wine, okay. in a heartbeat. Okay, <laughs> you know, or just like sausage on a plate. That I was kind of say thing. They eat a lot of hamburgers there. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm trying to translate for you. Got it. Uh, Barbera is something that can be done very simple and juicy and fruity. Uh, has good acid. Uh, does not have much tannin. And Barbera is like often pasta, tomato sauce. 
that any anything in that direction, ragu, that wants Barbera. There are mineral versions that, you know, from best sites that are a little more expensive and that age very well. That can be really compelling. Uh, and then then there's some oddballs. Fraser, which is kind of tannic and tart and spicy and wants a robustly flavored something, maybe organ meats. Probably, obviously, I could do like six programs on the the, well, the you, joys of the monte. It's one of your favorites. I get it. Uh, yeah. No, that's anyway. That's all we have time for. If you want to download this episode or any one of the others, please go to the WIPR website, wipr.org. Look for the Foreman Wolf page, and there's a whole menu of goodies right there. To email, correspond with us. It's foremanwolf at wipr.org. To follow Chef Cindy Wolf on social media. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram as Chef Wolf and on Facebook as Cindy Wolf. And you can follow my Instagram, uh, The Real Tony Foreman. Thanks so much for listening. Happy Sunday.